Last month, I had the privilege to go to Los Angeles, and uh, I love doing urban work. I love being with churches in the inner city, and um, had the privilege of getting a chance just to meet with some people who are uh, what we call bivocational, meaning they work a full-time job and then also work at a local church. People share their stories about how they do this. One one guy actually uh, oversaw all the maintenance on the United States Postal Service in his region, and so he oversaw a fleet of vehicles and a, and a group of uh, mechanics, and he did that as his regular day job, and then on the weekends, he would preach, and throughout the week, he would care and pastor for this, this church in the inner city of about, a, about 100 people. The stories um, were pretty incredible because the organization we work with, there's two of them, Stadia, which is the church planting group that we regularly work with, uh, whether we're planting in Ecuador through Compassion International or whether we're uh, planting out on the East Coast with somebody who's uh, starting a church. Um, but they also partner with a group called World Impact, and World Impact does these $15,000 grants. They just they, they have they ask churches to come and to give them a $15,000 grant so that they can help this inner city church do more than what they could on their own. And so they're sharing these stories, and one of the gals gets up, and she begins to share this conversation about how she kind of grew up in life and had a daughter and made a few mistakes and ends up going to prison and then comes out and has given her life to Christ. And she wondered how to put her life back together, what she needed to do. And over time, what she decided was that she should, um, she should care for people on Skid Row in L.A., now, Skid Row is, uh, well, they call it Skid Row. I mean, do we have to explain this? You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's rough. I mean, if you've seen any of the movies or anything that's tried to capture downtown L.A., uh, the homeless scenario is massive. So this young woman, uh, she goes to this parking lot. They show a video of her. She's kind of walking in a parking lot, just kind of showing you her church activities of the day. And as she walks into this parking lot, you see her kind of go in, and you find out that it's, a, it's an empty portion of a parking lot of, of a church right on Skid Row. All of a sudden, you see people beginning to grab chairs and set them out, and they don't look like churchgoers. They look like the local people off of Skid Row. Before you know it, you see people sitting in seats, and you see her kind of hands raised, kind of praying and blessing over the people, and then you, you see her holding a communion tray, and you see people coming and eating bread and drinking juice and being reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you know, you know me, I'm a mess at this point. I'm crying, I'm blubbering all over myself. I can't, I'm like, oh my gosh, look, they're having church on Skid Row, and uh, they tell this story that her ministry is called He Knows My Name because she's memorized everybody's name that she knows on Skid Row. And every time they show up, she calls them by name. She places a hand on them. She gives them a hug. She prays over them, shares a devotion, shares a moment in communion. And oh my goodness, man, I'm a mess. And there's all these senior pastors sitting in a room and we're snotting on ourselves and it's embarrassing, you know. And okay, not really. We, we're, we're, we kept it together for a moment. The whole reason I got asked to go to L.A. was because there's this guy named Matt Thomas. Matt Thomas is a guy who got himself in trouble. Now, not everybody who plants these urban churches have gone to prison, but Matt as well has gone to prison. He uh, kind of grew up in Indiana, went to school in Indiana, and ends up moving to Phoenix, and he gets arrested and does his time, and while he's in prison, he comes to faith. He leaves and gets out of prison starts attending church with some people and realizes that this calling to follow after God is deeper than just going to church. And he decides that the best way to rehab and change people's lives is perhaps inside the prison, not waiting till they get 
out of prison. And so Matt is a partner that's asked us to give a grant so that he can keep planting churches in prison. So far, he's planted two. And so I want to show you a picture. This is, uh, this is Matt's church in prison. Now, if you look at it, you probably go, oh, it looks like they're praying. Yeah. But if you look closely, you can see some white towels across people's necks. And these are men preparing to surrender their life before Christ at church. And the reason I share the story of both Skid Row and prison is because worship happens anywhere because church can happen anywhere. Wherever the presence of God is and people begin to gather, church breaks out. And for those of us that have given our life to Christ, whether we are with others or on our own, worship can break out because God is alive and active in us and through us. And so I want to start with just a, kind of trying to chip at your perspective of worship this morning because most of us think about it as this hour that we'll spend together. Some of us will even check it off in our minds that, well, I've done church for the week. And that's not worship. Worship is not just something we do together. It's the way that we live our faith, both individually and corporately. But I, uh, I planted a church in Tampa a few years ago. And so every time I see a video like Seth and Megan, my heart, my heart just, it, it just it overflows. And getting a chance to see someone plant a church in Skid Row or in a prison, as Christ followers, it should cause us to erupt with our soul. It should cause us to have great excitement because we are on the forefront of stepping into the darkness and being light, or oftentimes there is no light. And so I want to pause and pray this morning if we can. Can I do that? Can we take some time to pray in my message this morning? And I just want to pray that in us and through us, in the witness of this church, whether it be here or the other side of the world, that God may move in incredible ways. Let's pray. God, this morning, my, uh, my heart is full as I think about our church family. Whether we're in Japan, where uh, less than 1% of the entire nation believes in God. Whether we're in Monmouth, Illinois. Whether we're in Champaign, Illinois. Whether we're on Skid Row. Or whether we're in prison. God, you're there. And so, God, in this moment, we want to ask that your spirit, spirit would continue to permeate every corner of this world, that it would begin to penetrate every hardened heart, that it would begin to open up and clear the minds of confusion, the hearts of havoc, the busyness of bodies, and God, may people begin to sense that what is happening in this world is greater than any heat wave or political tension or transition in education, that God, you are winning people back to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ 
and through our lives as witnesses in our community as we live out this life of worship for your glory and your honor. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. We've been in this series called Habits, and this week we want to talk about worship. We want to talk about worship as a spiritual discipline, and everything we've been talking about in this idea of spiritual disciplines has been this one point, right? The point of the do is to lead you to the who, right? Everything that we're trying to get to, whether it be prayer or fasting or Sabbath or solitude, whether it be our serving, whatever it is, whatever discipline that we've jumped into, we've tried to just say everything we're doing is to help grow and enrich our relationship so that we might know God better, more deeply, more personally. I mean, think about it on a practical level. How many of you ever jumped into a relationship and just once uh, went on a great date and expected it to last forever? No. We, we invest more. We engage more. We grow more. We challenge each other more. We, we go above and beyond to enhance and expand what that relationship is about because it's about living, giving, sharing, serving. So I want you to take a moment. I want you to just think for just a second. When you hear the word worship... What do you think about? I don't know if you need to close your eyes and think for a moment. You can do that if you want. But when you think about worship, what do you think about? Oftentimes people will say, well, it's the lights, it's the music, it's, it's the haze, it's the, it's, the, it's the experience that we have on Sunday mornings. And, you know, we, we do what we do on a Sunday morning in the, in the creative arts expression that we do because we are, we are engaging all people so that we all, from the stage to the seats, are singing to an audience of one. I don't know if you realize that, but when we have worship gatherings like this, these are not the performers, we are the performers, right? And so together, what we do in this experience is we may sing, we may pray, we, we may hear from the word, we may do a variety of things, but when we think about worship, oftentimes we, 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 we dump it down to, well, let's stand for worship, right? And everybody automatically thinks music. Oh, we're supposed to sing. That music and worship are the same. I like how Aaron Hayes talks about this. He was describing to us in our teaching team just that the idea that we have to understand that music is just a vehicle. It's the way that we step into our relationship and express that. And so he says that music is worship, but worship is not music, meaning it's not defined or confined by singing, which means we could get together and not do a single song and worship could still happen. Music is not essential. But it is a primary expression all throughout Scripture with instruments and voices and choirs and individuals and all these different expressions that music becomes a primary vehicle. Why? Because music tends to capture our emotions, our thoughts, our wonders. It begins to give greater pictures. The, the words within these songs oftentimes cause us to reflect, to pause. And sometimes when we do our American style of church, right, where we program everything out and everything has a purpose and we're trying to make sure that everything's lined up so that people understand, we might actually get a song that feeds into a, a message or a message that feeds into us. And, and all of a sudden you start holistically understanding that this whole experience is trying to do one thing for all of us. Pull us closer to Jesus. 
open our hearts, open our minds, and bring us closer to Jesus. And so when we talk about worship specifically here, we would define Christian worship this way, that Christian worship is the full life response of our head, our heart, and our hands to who God is and what God has done. For who God is and what God has done. Now notice, there's no mention of a building. There's no mention of a crowd. There's no mention of a hazer or music. What there's the mention of is this recognition that if we have a relationship with God, everything of our lives is surrendered back to God. So the way that we think and act and speak, the way that we relate with each other, the way we live our very breath, the way we show up at work, the way we live in our homes, the way we, the way we hang out with our friends, the way we, we spend our money, the way that we earn, use our time, the way that we live our lives, everything is surrendered back to God. And so I want to encourage you to open up uh, your Bibles, if you were. We're going to look at a passage today that is very seldom used about worship. There are oftentimes when pastors want to talk about worship, they have a couple of passages that they, they jump to right away and everybody goes, oh, I just love this passage. We're going to look at one that really never mentions worship, but it's written to a, a young church, a church plant who has surrendered their lives to Christ. Jesus has died, been buried, rose again. This birth of the church is now spreading to a community called uh, Colossae. And this person, Paul, is one of the first apostles. He brings the message of Jesus to them. And as they begin to live this truth, like anything, it, can, it begins to, to maybe waver a little bit. It begins to experience challenges. That faith needs to mature and grow. And so, so Paul starts by saying, you know, I fight like heaven to make sure that you know that you know without a doubt that this relationship with God is so deeply engulfed in my life that I want it to be engulfed in yours. He says it this way. He's contending for the faith. He's fighting for it. And this is what he wants for this young church when you start in Colossians 2, starting in verse 6. Now, we're going we're gonna to go verse by verse. We're going to kind of break a little bit just to unpack this as we go along. So keep your Bible open, keep your thumb in place, and let's read it if we can. Here's what Paul says. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. It's a simple statement. It's a simple statement. But the truth of the matter is, is we live in a world, and even in Christian faiths, that sometimes do this. Once you give your life to Christ, you don't have to do anything else, right? Once you get in the tank, you don't have to do anything else. Once you get confirmed, you don't have to do anything else, right? And Paul says, that's not the point. The point of a relationship with Jesus is that once you've received that, you begin to live that out. It only begins to take over more and more of your life, where your life becomes this complete life of surrender, once again, think about real relationships, right? How, how many of you got married and then never talked to your wife for the rest of your life, right? Well, we got a ring. What else do you need, baby, right? That's absurd. But the truth of the matter is, we do that with God, don't we? Oh, he's all powerful. God's gracious. God loves us. And Paul says, no. In the everyday rhythm of our lives, you should be living your relationship with Jesus even more and more and more. Why? Why? 
Because our value, our identity is not in our performance or in our works or in our strength or in our might. Our value is in our relationship with Jesus. So what we said last week, we are enough because God has made us enough. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ empowers us to live differently. And he says this in verse 7. Rooted, build up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul begins to describe this everyday living is a tree that is getting deeper roots and greater branches. Deeper roots and greater branches. That what happens when we give our life to Christ, what is intended to happen in our relationship with Christ, is that our roots would deepen, our branches would strengthen, fruit would multiply, and literally what they're talking about is blooming and blossoming. Life is abundantly being expressed out of your life. And you know what happens when God tends to move in people's lives? A smile shows up, doesn't it? Thankfulness begins to exude out of the life that we're a part of. And so can we, can we call a timeout right now? Is anybody grumpy in here? Anybody struggling with life right now? Can we do a gut check and say, how's your relationship with God these days? And are you rooted? Are you growing? Are you blooming? Are you bearing fruit? Or are you like, a, like the kid who couldn't really act, you know, in the musical, and you just got stuck in the back, Right? Nobody wants to be a tree. Nobody wants to be the tree. Unless we're living our relationship for Jesus. Here's what it says then in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elements, spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Now, Paul, Paul pulls them close. We want to live every moment like we're living for Christ. We want to be rooted and blossoming, growing in thankfulness, flourishing in front of a world. And when the winds come and the tree begins to blow with empty and deceptive philosophies, things that grab our heart that don't matter, things that are temporary but not eternal, Paul's speaking about how many of us in our lives Well, we would say we've surrendered our life to Christ. The truth of the matter is we've surrendered our life to our job. We've surrendered our life to our spouse. We've surrendered our life to our wallet. We've surrendered our life to our truck. See, worship isn't only a God thing. Worship is anything that we prioritize and pursue as the paramount value of our lives. And so there are good things that take the place of God things. And what happens in this is the philosophies, the thoughts of the... I mean, Paul's not just talking about philosophy in and of itself as in a a way of thinking, a worldview, but the values by which permeate our society. It's a dog-eat-dog world. It's the survival of the fittest. Got to get what you can now because you can't have it tomorrow, Right? Those are empty and hollow philosophies. No amount of money, no size of house, 
no type of car, no certain job, not even a single person can raise your value beyond the value of what God has placed in you because of Jesus. And yet, yet, we chase those things. We chase those things. And we make our relationship with God an attendance qualification to show up with other people who sing the songs that you sing. That's not what worship is. Matter of fact, as you begin to think about it even more and more, maybe worship in and of itself is not even a spiritual discipline. If, if worship is going to be this entire lifestyle of surrender back to God, maybe worship is actually the culmination of every spiritual discipline fully lived out, both corporately with those around us and in the world that we're a part of. So Sabbath and solitude and prayer and fasting and service, all of those things, while we practice and train and worship together, this is the launching point by which we live this life of worship. So as our, our roots are deepened and our branches are strengthened, that we would blossom and flourish and the world would go, look at that forest. There's shade, there's refuge, there's hope, there's love in the world. Not on 40 acres of land out on the southwest corner of Champaign. This is just where we do our pep rallies. The church and worship needs to happen out there more than it happens here. So think about all the spiritual wisdom that comes around us. Listen to our heart. Follow your own path. Fake it till you make it. Make your own truth. And we did this whole series about the, the Bible doesn't say that. And we tried to confront the very traditions that man has made up to just say, what, what would our life look like if we saw Scripture for what it is and Jesus for who he is and took it at its word and applied it in our everyday life? How might we be different? We would have to know the book, though. We'd have to recognize his voice. We would have to focus in such a way that we hear Jesus and his voice beyond everything else. Now, some of you go, how do you hear Jesus' voice in this world? Okay, let me talk to all the sports fans in the room. And I'm going to put this in the context of my house, so please don't judge me. Um, I learned it from you, right? Um, so I, I have the spiritual gift of both watching a game and hearing my wife when I want to. You understand what I'm saying? Some of you are like, okay, I know where this is going, right? Now, there are certain times that I have to ask my wife to pause for a moment. It's in the final minutes, or we might win the game, or whatever it is, you know. But by and large, many of you in this room have the ability to keep track of what score, who's got the possession, and what's happening in the game, and still listen to your wife. Why? I'm supposed to say, because we listen to our wife, clearly. But the truth of the matter is, it's because... We listen to the game enough that we can still filter what's happening in the background. It's not a marriage series, but let me tell you that, yes, we, men, spouses, we all need to repent. We all need to repent. The relationship with the spouse is most important, and the same is true about God. We sometimes let our game dictate the rhythm of our life rather than the relationship that we've committed to for eternity. And that's what happens when we're rooted in the word, when we spend time in prayer, when we make worship more than just an attendance thing, but we make it about being in relationship with God and expressing it before others. And then 
Paul says this, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and every authority. Now, that, those two verses could be uh, a thesis in and of themselves, okay? For in Christ, the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Paul's saying, we know that God is in the flesh, that Jesus himself is fully God and is fully man. And in Christ, meaning the Messiah, the one that's set apart to be our uh, payment for sin and salvation, has been brought this fullness, the entirety of God's character and empowerment. It's what gives him the power over death and sin. It's what raises him from dead to life. Because he is the head. He is the one of great authority. And all this fullness lives in Christ. And so when we surrender our life to Christ and have received him to live him, all the fullness of Christ begins to live in us. This is, this is incredible. This is overwhelming when you begin to think about it. That the same forgiveness and power over death now exudes in you. So you think about your obstacles, your troubles, things that are in your life, and you go, you know what? If that's the power within me, why am I not overcoming? What, what's, what's, why am I not engaged in the power of God in my life? Here's what worship is intended to do. Worship expresses the fullness of Jesus within us. When we begin to apply some of these spiritual habits, when we begin to live out our faith on a regular basis, when we begin to surrender our will and our actions back to God, the fullness of God begins to show up around us. It's kind of like the book of James, right? The book of James, which was written by the half-brother of Jesus, he talks about works. Works are not what we do to, to perform before God or to make God happy. We live out this life of faith because God is at work in us. So let me illustrate it to you this way. So when we think about this, we think about the fullness of God in a lot of different expressions. Now, uh, you guys just need to pray because this, 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 this could, I'm going to use power tools today. Somebody could get hurt today. Probably won't be you. But the fullness of God is really something that we don't, we don't quite comprehend. But as Christians, we do understand the emptiness of God, don't we? Sometimes when we give our life to Christ right out of the gate, we're, we're very much on fire for what God's doing. We want to change our lives. We have tears at our baptism. People get excited to see how we've changed, and we start confronting different portions of our life and what we want to get changed and switched up. And, you know, for those first... Uh, 60 days, 100 days, first year, we're really, we're really on fire. We want to see God do great things in our lives, you know? And so Jesus says, or Paul says, that all the fullness of Jesus begins to dwell in us. Full, Right? You should get excited. <laughs> but let's be honest. We start to live out our faith, and then all of a sudden, let's say we graduate, right? 
ruts. Things begin to spill. I love this illustration. Some of you are so worried. Don't worry. It's the, I'm wearing a white T-shirt, and I, I've got a T-shirt underneath, and I've got another shirt back in my office. We're okay, okay? But life begins to happen, and it begins to drill into us, right? We begin to leak, right? And then maybe we make some bad choices, right? Begin to leak. Maybe we begin to get caught in sin, We begin to leak even more. And before you know it, being full is almost, it's almost impossible. But God gives us spiritual disciplines. And with every spiritual discipline, the leaking begins to stop. And the more we live out our disciplines of prayer and Bible reading, we begin to fill back up. And while things want to leak, we become full again and overflowing. Got one more I forgot about. My point is this. We leak. And some of us today... We look at our lives, we look at our faith, and let's be honest, it stinks. Maybe you got confirmed, maybe you got dunked, maybe you grew up in somebody's house who believed about God, and when you talk about faith, fullness is not what you think. You think emptiness. And I want you to know that every hole that's represented in your life can be plugged. Every brokenness, every sin, every poor choice can be plugged. We all have holes. We all have scars. The question is, will we continue to leak and act like it's normal? Or will we grow the roots to extend the branches that begin to bloom and to blossom and to flourish for God's glory and God's credit. What, what does he say in verse 6 again? So then, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. Jesus talks about worship. He tells a woman that's at a well, he says, you know what? There's going to come a day that it's, worship's not about the, this mountain. It's not about a temple. It's not about a place. It's about this relationship with God. And all of creation has the ability to be our place of worship back to God. Paul tells a group of people in Rome as they're getting ready to, to live out their faith and to walk in the journey with Jesus. He says, you know what? Just think about this. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This will be your true and proper worship. And don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. They love it when I do these illustrations. I just need you to know that. So let me challenge you with this. 
Worship God as much as you can. Worship God as much as you can. Let's move to a time of response. We haven't talked a whole lot about where worship can happen and what might happen. And, but let me talk to you a little bit about some of my favorite worship places that I hear of. Maybe this is you. My favorite place to worship is, is in creation. Maybe on a mountainside, maybe on a lake. My favorite place to worship is it in deer stand. No amens on that. I didn't get any amens from any guy. Some people will say, I love to worship in a deer stand. That's where I feel closest to God. And some of us like to worship on a ball field, on a court. Some of us like to worship in our truck. The window's down, the mullet blowing, right? But I began to think about that a little bit. There is really no place on this earth that God cannot be worshiped. The challenge I have with my own, my own joy of hopping in my truck and throwing the windows down and driving and just in the silence thinking about what's going on, that sometimes if I'd admit my favorite places of worship are really more about what I'm doing and I'm getting than it is the focus of God. So let me challenge you for a moment in this. If your favorite place is to worship on a, a ball diamond, can you stop and ask yourself, then how am I worshiping publicly in front of my friends? If I'm coaching, do I serve like Jesus? Does my language encourage like Jesus? Does my demeanor in front of my players point them to Jesus? If my favorite place to worship is in my deer stand, are my eyes only focused on the rustling of the bushes? Or are the eyes of my heart and the recesses of my mind processing through how maybe God has been great in my life and obstacles that are laying before me and challenges that I've got. Is is that moment, getting a moment to say, God of all creation, I give my life to you. I'd like to shoot a buck, but what I really want, God, is for you to use me. What would it be like if one day that family member pulled up the deer's across the back of the vehicle, getting ready to take her into the shed and gutter. How was, how was your trip? Looked like it was great. You got a deer. Yeah, I got a deer. But I learned something about myself that I never thought about as I was praying. Yeah, I bet. I bet a truck or a field or a court or a deer stand can be awesome places of worship if God is being worshiped in those moments. 
Corporate worship is fun. I get the privilege of hearing the choir sing in the front row every, every Sunday that I'm here, right? I hear your voices. I hear, hear your claps. I hear your shouts. I hear your celebrations, and it's fun. But corporate worship sounds so, like, business-like. You know, it just means group worship, us coming together. But I love, I love when our worship begins to permeate our community. Isn't that why we say, now go be the church where we live, work, and play? Because we're inviting you to worship where you are. So if you're new with FIRST today, this is maybe going to be a little bit of a change of speed for you. We, uh, the band's going to get ready to sing. We're going to share some music, but people will spontaneously respond. They'll get up and move. And we move because we think it makes it more memorable. We think it puts action to our thoughts. It helps us think about we're moving into a, another expression. And, and hopefully today when our, our feet get moving, we're thinking about as they're going to move out of this building, how will we live differently? How will we live the fullness of Jesus in every relationship that we're a part of? But some people will come forward and on these benches, they'll pause and they'll pray. Some will pray words of thanksgiving and some will pray maybe prayers of concern or request or maybe they've got a new business that's going to be opening. Maybe, maybe we sense the, the pressure and just the things that are going on in the community around us. Maybe some of us are getting anxious about the university getting back in schedule and prospect being prospect be just being crazy again, right? You know? Some will go to these tables. These tables are really the centerpiece of why we do what we do. They're a reminder of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus that Jesus on the night before he was betrayed said, this is my body broken for you. And this is my blood poured out for you. It was a testimony to the covenant that he had made with Israel and now with all of us that we would be his chosen people that his death, his burial, his resurrection would be the payment for our sin and life everlasting and then many of us will give through the given response boxes some of them are our connection cards our prayer requests many of us through the give app to say we are surrendered. It's funny. It's funny because when we talk to finances, spiritually, some of us grab our wallets, don't we? What is it about that surrender? And what is it about that worship? I don't know. At least not for you. But every expression of worship, whether it be through our job, through our home, through our work, through our play, through our wallet is intended to do one thing, surrender our head, our hearts, and our hands back to him. So let's stand, let's respond, and let's see what God does in this time as we reflect surrendered lives in practice for living surrendered in front of this world.